This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 93 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. I wanted to take this time today to do kind of a review of the show over the last few years. Since this is the very first episode that I'm releasing in 2023, I thought it would be a good time to review some of the past episodes in the show that I've done over the last year and really just over the entire period that I've been doing this podcast, especially since I've recently rebranded and changed the name from Are They 18 Yet? to De Facto Leaders. So what I've been doing really over the last six months or so is kind of going through my content, you know, taking some of it down if some of it was old and outdated, and also just making some necessary revisions where I just felt like some of my old content needed to be either updated I maybe learned some new information and have changed my viewpoint or my understanding of certain things. So I wanted to take today to just highlight some of those key topics where I may have revised my understanding of certain things based on new information that I've learned over the last year, and also just some things that I've noticed in my older content where I felt like I wasn't fully explaining certain topics. So I wanted to just point out a couple of those today and just direct you to some of my past episodes. And it's not that I think that my past episodes were wrong. It's just that I want to make sure that I'm communicating some of these pieces of information clearly so that they're not misinterpreted. 
Before we go on, I wanted to tell you about two different things that are going to be relevant to some of the content that I mentioned today. The first is my ultimate guide to sentence structure. I actually just revised this yesterday. And as I was making those updates, I noticed a few things in the guide that I did not feel I fully explained very well or that where I thought the wording was misleading. So if you have the ultimate guide to sentence structure, definitely sign up for the new one. And if you don't have the guide and if you want a tool that's going to help you to address the syntax that students need in order to support language processing, comprehension, and those skills that are needed to support strong reading and writing, then definitely check out this guide. This guide outlines some of the skills that were so helpful to me as a school clinician who was responsible for supporting language because I often noticed that students seemed to, you know, I would be working on comprehension strategies, stating the main idea, inferencing, and working on answering questions. And students often did not make adequate progress on those things if they did not have adequate language skills to support their high-level comprehension. And one of the key culprits behind that is poor syntax skills and a weak understanding of how sentences should be put together. Many times when you work on these skills, this can make a huge impact on students' overall language use and comprehension. So I outline how to do that in this free guide. And this is going to be really important in supporting working memory as well, which is one of the key points of clarification that I was going to make today. So to check out that free guide, all you need to do is go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure, and you will be able to sign up to download that free guide. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. And then secondly, a lot of the other topics that I'm going to cover today are around things like positive reinforcement, attention span, and just supporting executive functioning, not just thinking about what you can do as a clinician to support students within your sessions, but also just what needs to happen at a building level and at a systemic level to actually support students' executive functioning so that they can be independent adults one day. So I'm going to talk about some of those topics and clarify some of the past episodes that I have done to cover this topic. And the program that's relevant to that is the School of Clinical Leadership, because in this program, I help clinicians to create systems that allow them to be better leaders so that they can actually put the supports in place for themselves and for their students so that their students can actually start to generalize skills and so that they can actually make a bigger impact on their caseloads. And I wanted to make a key point of clarification here. You can be a leader without actually being in an official leadership role. You don't have to wait for someone to designate you as a leader. You don't have to be a school administrator or someone else who is traditionally considered to be in a leadership position, you can actually start to lead others now in the position that you're currently in when you have the right tools and when you have the right systems. Actually, this is something that needs to happen in order for some of these systemic issues to change. So if you are someone who wants to know how you can use your clinical skills to be a leader in your facility and your community, if you're frustrated with how service delivery is done and you want to play a part in making that change, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. There's a whole executive functioning suite in that program because that is a huge part of being a clinical leader. 
regardless of whether you're an SLP, psychologist, social worker, or other related service provider. So to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. So as I do this review of some of my past content and points of clarification, I'm going to do this in order of themes. I am going to somewhat go in chronological order, considering when certain episodes were published, but sometimes I may jump around a little bit if I have to lump a couple together because they are around a certain theme. So first of all, I wanted to talk about episode 14 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast, which obviously is now the De Facto Leaders podcast, where the title of the episode is Am I Neurotypical? I'm Not Sure. So that's when I talked a little bit about some of my experiences as a child, just some different challenges that I had when it came to sensory overload and just getting my own sensory needs met, as well as some of my own diagnoses. And I did mention in that episode that I may have some updates on that whole status. And basically, um, where it sits now, I do, as far as what I share publicly, um, the information that I share publicly is, no, I'm not neurotypical, but that's really where I leave it. Um, I am the firm believer that your diagnoses are your business. And I do know that sometimes sharing your own personal experience can be helpful. It can be very compelling. It can be very relatable. But I'm also a believer in science. And on this podcast, I share evidence-based strategies. I also do that within my courses and other resources for clinicians and I don't think the fact that I am not neurotypical makes my information more valuable or reliable than someone who is neurotypical. So I have seen people use the argument that if you're neurotypical, then you don't fully understand or you're not fully qualified to deliver treatment for someone who is neurodivergent. I think that we need to look at the science. And I think that if a therapist has a certain diagnosis and they would like to share their personal experience if they find that to be helpful to their clients, if they find that to be information that helps them learn new things about the way that they serve their clients, that's great. And I also think it's up to them if they want to share those experiences with other people. But I don't think that's a determining factor as to whether or not that person is a good therapist. I think that we need to look at the strategies. We need to look at the evidence. And I think that both both neurotypical and neurodivergent therapists are capable of doing that. So I don't use a person's neurological status or their diagnoses as a determinant to whether or not I will listen to them or whether or not I think that their practices or strategies that they're recommending are effective. I actually look at the strategies themselves and see if they fall in line with best practices. So I wanted to just say that because I think that it's a very important point of clarity to make. Um, again, I'm not neurotypical, but I don't think that that makes me more or less qualified to provide the information. I think that the reason that I'm able to provide this information is because I have a lot of experience and education and background in the topics that I am sharing. 
Again, the episode that I'm referring to is episode 14 of the De Facto Leaders podcast. At the time, of course, it was Are They 18 Yet? The next thing I wanted to talk about is the idea of improving your attention span, medication, as well as the idea of using natural treatments to improve your attention span or improve your ADHD and all of those types of things. So I actually really did like the episode that I put out on the appeal to nature fallacy. I think that that's a really important thing for people to be aware of as they are navigating the world of executive functioning, attention, focus, all of these things, things that are a huge issue now with all of the technology and social media, all of the things that are competing for our attention span. And I think this is really important because even people who don't have diagnoses like ADHD are having issues with their attention spans just because there are certain things that are out there right now that have an impact on us neurologically and are certainly having an impact on our children's neurological development. So some of this right now, what I wanted to do is just remind you of some of the information that I've put out that needs to be out there, that needs to be shared because it is so important. It is something that parents need to know, that educators need to know. Thankfully, I do see some of these trends shifting in the right direction, especially at some of the schools in my area. So I wanted to draw your attention to episode three that's titled The Attention Span Myth as well as episode 49, where I talk about the appeal to nature fallacy. So what I talked about in episode three is the question of whether or not you can improve your attention span. So there's on one side, just, you know, wondering if you have something like ADHD, if you have a neurological difference that impacts your ability to sustain attention, can you actually change your brain? And I talk a little bit in that episode about that topic and about where I fall as far as within my scope of practice, as well as how clinicians and parents can handle the whole conversation around medication. And what I wanted to reiterate here is that, yes, the things that we do in our environment do impact us neurologically. Yes, the behaviors that we engage in can have an impact on our brain. But if you have a neurological difference, you may always have that neurological difference. So that means that if you have ADHD, you might be able to make some changes to your brain by using behavioral methods, meaning by doing certain exercises or by avoiding certain things that cause you to have a lowered attention span. So by playing video games, for example, that is going to be something that is not good for you if you have ADHD. You can also learn strategies that might not necessarily change your brain, but they might just improve your ability to function considering your current neurological status. And really what I do as a therapist is on the strategy end. So part of what I do is help people to create the structure for their environment so that they can 
optimize what they have so that they can engage in activities that are going to help them make the neural connections that are going to, again, make the most of what they have, build new skills, but also show them how to structure their day so that they have the right habits that are going to allow them to use what they have. So some of the things are compensatory and some of the things are actually going to provide rehabilitative impacts on the brain. But having said that, none of this is magic. So none of these things that can improve your attention span or teach you strategies are going to take away the fact that certain people do have neurological differences. And they may always have those differences. They may always have to use strategies. Certain things might always be challenging for them. They may have to be aware of that as they grow older. So it is not extremely helpful to tell people things like ADHD as a superpower because it's not. It is a medical condition that has an impact on you neurologically, and that can actually have a negative impact on your ability to do certain things. And if you don't understand what those things are, you're not going to be able to use strategies that are going to help you to be successful. So when I say that, it doesn't mean that I think that there's something wrong with you if you have a certain diagnosis. What I am saying is that that is always going to be something that is going to impact your brain and you need to know about it because you can be successful and kids can be successful if they have the right strategies and if they fully understand how their brains work. So really, that's what we need to do. We don't want to sugarcoat things by saying ADHD is a superpower. It's not, but that doesn't mean you can't be successful. So when I talk about things like improving attention span, we're not talking about magic here. We're talking about things that require consistency and hard work. But if you do focus on the right things and if you focus on accurate information, not fluffy, woo-woo, sugar-coated information, you actually set yourself up for success. And this is so important for any clinician to understand if you are supporting kids because you need to play a part in putting accurate information out there and providing the right supports for the kids that you're serving. And if you are an SLP, a psychologist, a social worker, and you are working with kids, chances are a lot of these issues have probably come up. I do believe that all of these disciplines play a part in this conversation and in providing the support. And then finally, there is the medication conversation. So when I was a school clinician, obviously we could not legally tell parents what to do when it comes to medication. Even now as a clinician and as a person who is in a position of leadership, I still don't tell people what they should or shouldn't do when it comes to medication because I am not an MD and I'm not a person who prescribes medication. As therapists, obviously, we are the ones that sometimes notice things that might indicate that a family might need to have a conversation about medication, but we're not the ones prescribing it. We're also the ones that often are reporting back after a child goes on medication to let the doctor who is prescribing it know how things are going. So obviously, if you're in the schools, you know that this can be a very delicate conversation. Typically, the way that I would handle it and the way that the team that I was on would handle it would say something like, you know, here's here's a report, here's some information. We recommend that you have a conversation with your child's pediatrician the next time they go to the doctor. And we would share whatever reports we had relating to 
whatever the concerns were. Um, Typically, that might be rating scales, reports, descriptions of academic performance and behavioral observations, just whatever information was needed in order to provide the doctor with the information that they might need in order to make a diagnosis of ADHD and consider whether or not medication would be beneficial for the child. But if you are looking at what is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as if you're looking at evidence, part of management for ADHD does include things like parent coaching and strategies and supports for the environment, as well as medication management. So what I wanted to do here is just clarify that, of course, this is always a family decision. It's always a very personal decision. I encourage people to get all the information. I encourage them to get second opinions about this and get thorough evaluations. But at the same time, people should know that there is no shame in needing to be on medication. It is necessary in many cases. And also, as I mentioned in episode 49, we have to be very wary of treatments that have the word natural in them. A lot of times people assume that if something is, quote, natural, that means it's somehow healthier. That is not the case. Many times things that are natural are ineffective and potentially harmful if they prevent you from actually getting treatment that you need. And sometimes there are other harms as well. And I do go into that in episode 49. So definitely check out that episode. But beware of the appeal to nature fallacy, which is basically that things that come from nature are more effective and safer than things that many times the things that are supposedly natural are actually man-made and have other synthetic materials in them as well. And while I did say, and while I did say in episode three that regardless of what your decision is regarding medication, that you need to give children strategies and scaffolding structure in their environment and an understanding of how their brains work. So that's something that is a non-negotiable regardless of what is going on when it comes to medication. But there are certain cases when medication could potentially make a big difference and make all of those things that you're doing way more effective. So it's really important to mention that. But I also wanted to say that some of the things that are often done as kind of a, you know, a cure or a natural cure for things that may require medication. So things like looking at sleep, looking at diet, I actually do recommend that People look at things like sleep and diet, but I don't think that those things are a magic fix. The truth is, is that if you are going to provide support for kids, kids need a lot of structure and boundaries in their environment. And yes, of course, being well-fed and having a healthy diet and being hydrated and eating good food and eating foods that don't have a lot of processed ingredients Those things are going to impact how you feel and they are going to impact your attention and focus, but you still have ADHD. Even if you have a good quality diet, you still may require medication. Diet is not a cure. Yes, it's something that's important. It's something that you should focus on. It can definitely be helpful. It's not a magic fix. Same with things like sleep. Sleep is so important. Having a healthy bedtime routine and structure is going to be very important for a child communicating those expectations in the home are going to be very important as well. But again, 
a lot of these things, I do recommend people start with these things because they can help create structure in your environment and that can set kids up for success. But we shouldn't think of these things as this is going to be the one magic fix that's going to make me not need medication or be able to get off medication. Yes, in some cases, people are able to provide enough structure in their environment that they might be able to function without medication. But I did want to make sure that people didn't see these things as, you know, this is one magic fix. Unfortunately, people often market these types of strategies as, you know, I'm a I'm a health coach, so if you change your diet, you're going to be able to eliminate all those other things that you're doing. In truth, this is something that requires consistency. It's something that likely requires you to change a lot of different habits in your life at once. And so when we're thinking about how to support families and coach parents and give schools the information that they need in order to provide the supports that they need for kids in schools and, again, provide accurate information to communities, this needs to be a layered approach. What actually needs to happen is that, yes, we probably should create structure around the bedtime routine. Yes, we should probably create structure around mealtimes and homework times. And schools in classrooms should probably create structured routines in the classroom so that there's expectations. And what I'm communicating here is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. We're always going to be peeling back the layers of the onion. And so we need to understand that we might not be able to fix all of these things at once. There's not one sexy quick fix We do need to just one at a time, change one habit at a time, then move on to the next one when we're working with families, when we're working with school districts, when we're working with our IEP teams. We need to really get comfortable with consistency and with tiny little bits of progress over time that are going to compound. I think that a lot of times when we think about marketing, people like to sell these quick fixes or sell these, you know, I changed everything within a month. And that's just not how this is going to be. And so I think a lot of times people get discouraged with things that are actually effective, because they're not giving them enough time. So again, in truth, there is no quick fix for any of this. I think that that's why a lot of these things that promise these big, you know, improve your attention span, or, um, you know, change your diet, and everything's going to get better and all of these things. Yes, All of these things are pieces, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I think we really need to get comfortable with that. And I just really want to make sure that that is clear within the information that I am sharing. So two episodes that I'm referring to where I dive into this topic a little bit further. There's episode three, the attention span myth. And there's also episode 49, where I talk about the appeal to nature fallacy. Now let's move on to talking about positive reinforcement. So the two episodes that I wanted to draw your attention to are episodes 7 and 32. So in one episode, I talk about positive reinforcement, whether or not it really helps kids. And then also episode 32, where I talk about how certain interventions, if they're solely focused on compliance, do they do more harm than good? So just to give a quick synopsis of my understanding of both of these things. So there's a lot of information out there that suggests that if you are providing any type of positive reinforcement, that all you are doing is forcing compliance. So I actually went through and looked up some updated research on this particular topic 
to add to the School of Clinical Leadership because I think when kids are struggling with executive functioning, this can get very confusing because on one hand, you don't want to be overly punitive. A lot of kids who are struggling with executive functioning, people assume that they're just lazy and unmotivated, which really it's that's not the case. We know that they are having a hard time seeing themselves being successful. They're having a hard time understanding the steps. They're having a hard time initiating all of these things that are actually associated with executive dysfunction. So what we're really doing, if we're just punishing kids without teaching them the skill, is that we are punishing them without actually teaching them the skill that they need in order to be successful. So it would be like if somebody dangled a cookie in front of me and wanted me to do calculus, well, I'm never going to be able to do it no matter how many cookies you promise me because I don't have the skills. So really, that's the point that I wanted to get across is that we can't positively reinforce kids into doing things if they don't have the skills to actually do them. So that's really important to understand. And when we're thinking about positive reinforcement, sometimes creating structure in the environment. So for example, saying something like, you know, we need to structure the day so that kids get their homework done before they do their preferred tasks. That is not forcing compliance. That is teaching a couple key skills. It's teaching the idea of knowing how to manage your time. And it's also teaching you the idea that in order for us to be able to do things that we like to do, sometimes we have to do work first. Sometimes we have to do things that are not our most preferred tasks. So it's building resilience. It's teaching the skill of delaying gratification. It can also, when done correctly, help kids to be able to better sense time. So all of those things are going to be really important skills. So while we don't want to be overly punitive and just shame kids for something that they legitimately don't know how to do, we don't want to go too far in the other direction and not provide any structure. And I think that's really important because there's been many times when, you know, people will go on one extreme versus the other, where on one hand, sometimes people will be too punitive and they will just assume that kids are lazy and that's not helpful. But then on the other hand, sometimes people will say, oh, well, if you force them to do anything that they don't want to do, you're just forcing compliance. Well, that's not true either. I think it's really important that we have flexibility with understanding how this works. Also, it is also it is always best and the most effective to allow natural consequences to happen. But with certain kids, if they don't have the ability to future pace far into the future, then sometimes you do have to create the structure and scaffolding for them in order to help them to engage in activities that are going to help them to learn skills. Some kids just need a little bit more structure. So sometimes that does, on the surface, look like you are providing, quote, positive reinforcement or rewards or whatever it is. But really what we're doing is we're providing structure to help kids to make good choices. Sometimes we just won't be able to allow all of the natural consequences to unfold because kids just don't yet have those future pacing skills in order to be able to do non-preferred tasks. And so sometimes we do have to create that structure when you're doing that. That's not forced compliance. That's just providing scaffolding and structure. And of course, we want to do this in a way that challenges kids. So asking kids to do things that they don't want to do 
is not going to be harmful to them. That's a very important life skill that they are going to need to learn in order to be successful. But at the same time, we can certainly take their interests into account. But allowing kids to do exactly what they want to do all the time isn't going to be in their best interests in the long run. So that's really important to understand as we work through this. But at the same time, we do want to take their interests and their abilities into account because a lot of those behavior charts that are being done are just way too abstract and not meaningful to kids. Yes, in certain situations, as I explain in episode seven, that sometimes if you have some kind of a visual that allows kids to see the number of days that they've done a certain skill, or if there's some way that it can be representative of progress and that actually means something to a child, then it might be helpful. But if you're just framing it like, you know, if you do this, you get a sticker and that doesn't mean anything to them, it's not going to be super helpful and motivating and it's not going to work very well. So really the best way to avoid being punitive is always to think about what skill am I actually teaching kids? There are many cases where it might be kind of challenging. You might get a little pushback from them or a lot of pushback from them, but If you can tie it back to a skill that is going to be necessary for that child to learn, then you know that you are actually teaching a useful skill that is going to support them in the long run. And the simple act of delaying gratification and putting something down that you want to do for the sake of doing something for someone else, for the sake of doing something that contributes to the family, for the sake of persevering through something that is not your favorite thing to do, those are all very important skills for kids to learn. Again, for some discussion on both sides of this topic, you can check out episode seven as well as episode 32. Finally, I wanted to wrap up by talking about working memory, something I've talked about a number of times on this podcast. Recently, I've been involved in a number of different discussions and professional groups on the topic of working memory and working memory research. And the reason that I think this is really important is because of the massive amount of misinformation out there about being able to improve attention and focus. And so if you Google things like, how can you improve your working memory, you will get a lot of information that isn't very accurate. So some of the strategies or exercises that are recommended, especially on some of these brain training apps, sometimes you'll see recommendations for just, you know, rote repeating words, numbers, things like that. And the research shows that, yes, if you are improving your ability to recall words and numbers and spit it back out, which does tax your working memory because your working memory is your ability to hold information in and then immediately use it. So the research does show that, yes, if you do those training tasks, you can actually improve your ability to do that task. So that's typically how working memory is measured when we are looking at peer-reviewed research. The problem is, is that research shows that there is very narrow transfer with those types of tasks. So you might improve your ability to do that rote drill, but it doesn't actually transfer over to anything useful. So it's not super helpful if you actually want to be a more successful human. So That is why I have taken really a firm stance on the way that I explain working memory. So I don't say we can improve working memory. I don't say we can increase working memory. I don't say that we are, quote, working on working memory. What I do say is that if someone has an impairment that is going to impact their working memory, which 
if they have executive dysfunction, that is going to be one of the hallmark characteristics. So it's going to be really hard for them to hold information in and then use it immediately. And that is going to cause them to get distracted, appear like they're losing their focus, appear like they lost their motivation, whatever it is. And so if someone has difficulty with that skill, what we want to do is that we want to build skills that are going to support working memory. So the key word there is support, not increase, not improve, but support. What we are essentially going to do is create the structure and the other skills that are going to allow us to access the working memory that we do have and to complete whatever it is that we're trying to do successfully. We're not actually improving our working memory capacity. What we're doing is we are minimizing the cognitive load so we can access the working memory that we do have so we can do whatever we're trying to do. And the reason that I think it's really important to make that key distinction is because, again, we want to make sure that we are being evidence-based. We wanna make sure that we're actually working on the right skills in our interventions that are going to support kids. And if you look at any peer-reviewed article or any clinical forum that is talking about things that are going to support working memory, what they're really doing is supporting things like language, vocabulary, and executive functioning. And yes, working memory does fall under that umbrella of executive functioning, but really what we're doing is we're supporting those language skills that are going to allow us to access what working memory we do have to complete the task. So again, I'm being kind of a stickler here on how we explain that because I think it's important for us to understand what's really going on so that we can pull out the necessary features when we are designing interventions and explaining to other people how we can support kids across contexts. Kids who struggle with executive functioning, those working memory issues are going to impact them across the board. So everyone who needs to come in contact with that child needs to understand what's going on and needs to know what they need to do to support that child. And doing rote drills that, quote, work on working memory are not what we need to be doing. Really what we need to be doing is supporting those language skills that are going to give kids the ability to access the syntactic, vocabulary, semantic, as well as the internal dialogue needed in order to complete their tasks that they're trying to do. Having said all of that, and having gone on several tirades in multiple professional groups this last week, as I was revising my own sentence structure guide, I realized that I had a heading in one of my chapters that said something about how to increase working memory. And so that heading that I had in that ultimate guide to sentence structure was misleading. I wanted to make sure that I corrected it. And so as of now, it is December 13th, the new guide is available. And basically, if you have the old guide, just be aware that there is a heading in there that makes mention about increasing working memory. But really what we're doing is that we are using language skills to support working memory. And also you can download the newer version of the guide that is updated. The language is tightened up in a couple of the different chapters, so it's a little more concise. And some of those points where I thought I was being a little misleading with my language are corrected. So this is a good place for me to wrap up this discussion. So first of all, if you wanted to download the newest version of that ultimate guide to sentence structure, where I do go through the syntactic skills needed to support language comprehension, and also that will support working memory, 
not increase working memory, but support working memory so that kids can better comprehend when they are reading and also it will have an impact on their writing performance as well, then definitely check out the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure, where I go through some of the most challenging sentence types that tend to be culprits behind processing issues, as well as some strategies for working on them. So to check out that guide, and to download your own copy, just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that is drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. I also talked a lot about how to support executive functioning in this episode. So I firmly believe that yes, our clinical skills are important, but what's even more important is the way that we lead others because we need to use our clinical knowledge to help share information with others that's going to help support kids. And I really believe that working on executive functioning is not just about what you do in therapy. It's really a building-wide initiative. And the people who have the clinical expertise in this area can be guiding that initiative. So if you are a speech pathologist, psychologist, social worker, or other service provider, and you are noticing that a lot of kids on your caseload are having mental health challenges, are having a hard time coping, are having a hard time with resilience, getting work done, you're hearing a lot about behavior problems, or you're just not seeing good carryover with some of the skills that you're working on in your sessions, whether it be social skills, whether it be academic skills, Many times the issue is that there's not adequate executive functioning support across the day in the schools. This is often not the teacher's fault. They need your support in order to be able to do their jobs well, because as you know, teachers have so much on their plate already. So we need to be the ones that provide that support as related service personnel. And our administrators need this information too, because they're focused on a lot of things as well. We are the ones with the clinical knowledge in this area that can be guiding these initiatives. Yes, we need their support, but we need to provide them with information in order to make these initiatives happen. So if you're struggling with any of those things that I just mentioned, and if you have a lot of students on your caseload that struggle with attention, or you're not seeing good generalization, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. I have an entire executive functioning suite in this program that outlines the interventions that kids need at home in school so that you can get started and so that you have the information you need to start those initiatives in your building. Now, I know you might be thinking, how the heck am I going to have time to do all of that on top of my busy caseload? Well, in the program, I actually show you how to do that. So I show you how to use a technique I refer to as asset stacking that helps you strategically build trainings and resources and relationships over time so that you can actually be an agent of change in your building when it comes to the way that services are delivered and in the way that kids are supported in your community. So to check out the School of Clinical Leadership, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you've been enjoying this podcast, please help us out and leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. This really helps me out so that I can get this information 
into the ears of more people who need it. And always feel free to share this with your colleagues, with your family, and with your friends. And finally, I'm always looking for great guests to be on the show. If you know someone who has shown some type of leadership within their community or their facility, whether it has been through a clinical role, whether it has been just doing some kind of a grassroots initiative to support kids in their community, I'd love to chat with them and consider them as a guest on this show. So if you have suggestions for guests that you think have shown some type of de facto leadership in their job, in their facility, in their community, then email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com and let me know. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, I'd love to hear from you as well. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.